I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and I want you to listen uh, carefully today because there are a couple of things that I think are strategically important for us uh, this morning on loving God and loving others. This world does not know much about love. Uh, it thinks it does. It talks about it. The world sings about love, but they really know nothing about the biblical concept of what love is and what love looks like. C.S. <clears throat> Lewis said, love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. John Stott said, love is service rather than sentiment. The world sees love as sentiment, and you can blame it on Freud, on Hollywood, on the media, on the culture, but we are saturated with misconceptions of what love really is. We don't have a concept of biblical love, and yet John uses this word 50 times. 50 times. It's important. And the word he uses is agape. We have one word for love. The Greeks had multiple words for love, but I'm just going to pick two of them because two of them describe the extreme between the world's view of love and God's view of love. The first word is the word eros, or erotic, emotional, surface, shallow. The world is obsessed with eros, with feelings, with what makes me feel good. The Greeks use the word eros to define ecstasy of a religious experience. But they had no idea what a true religious experience is all about. The word agape is a word that Paul and John and others use. Actually, they took a word, baptized it, and gave it a new meaning. It means to want the best for someone, regardless of their merit or your cost. To want the best for someone, regardless of whether they deserve it or not, or what it costs you to give it. Chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Chapter 4 and verse 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Chapter 4 and verse 19, We love because he first loved us. Now, why is this distinction so important? Because if eros defines shallow feelings, erotic, emotional highs, if eros defines Christianity, then our faith is not sustainable. It is up and down. It's hot and cold. The Greek philosophy was man feels and to the point that he reaches up and he finally feels like he can touch God. That's not the Christian view. The Christian view is that God reached down and touched us when we didn't deserve to be loved. The, the agape view is responsible and it is consistent and God always takes the initiative. Eros Christianity, which is a lot of Christians, 
especially in America with all the conferences and the concerts and, and everything we have. Eros Christianity is hoping for a day or a moment when I'll have this magical, ooey, gooey feeling, and that feeling will take away all my problems and all my pain, and I'll be happy ever after. That's Disney World. That's not the cross. That's not the life of Christ. So love, first of all, is from God. Look at verse 7, chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That word does not know. Remember, all the verbs in 1 John are present tense. He's talking about He's not talking about, I made a decision in, uh, when I was nine years old, but I hadn't done anything with it since. These are present tense verbs, and it means that they're not saved. The Greek literally says, has never known, has never known God. The one that says they love God, but they don't love, has never known God. They may have had an eros experience, a, a shallow experience, a camp experience, a moment uh, when it just seemed like, oh man, God is so good and he is so sweet. But if you trace love back to its origin, it always goes back to the heart of God. And John says we are witnesses. We are his witnesses and we bear witness. We continually bear witness of the love of God. There's no deception. I mean, you look at John's writings. In the gospel, in his letters, his epistles, and in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the ultimate reality. Every other reality is a false reality. He's the ultimate reality. The danger of not checking our heart is that we will live a Christian life on the shallow level that we will depend on emotions, on a song that we like, on a book that we like to study, on a theme that we like to talk about. We will look for that which appeals to us rather than saying, God, here's your word, speak to me. Here's worship, I want to worship you with all my heart today. The danger is, in the generation 30 to 35 and under, we are losing any perspective of this in our culture. Let me just give you some statistics of 35 and under. 23% don't believe there's a God. Now, the reason you need to listen to these statistics and not just let them roll off your head is because that means that that group is influencing your kids and your grandkids. They are speaking into their lives. They're on the CW, they're on HBO, they're, on every, they're everywhere. And they are telling you and telling your kids and my kids and your grandchildren, you don't have to believe in God. 
This is an important thing for us to understand because they're religiously pluralistic. Oh, there's every way gets to God. You, you can get to God through Allah. You can get to God through Buddha. You can get to God through Jesus. You don't have to have Jesus. There are multiple ways to get to heaven. They're religiously pluralistic. And 10% that say that they are religious, so you've got the, those that don't believe in God, 10% that say that they're religious are, do not align themselves with a Christian religion. This is in America. It's not around the world. This is in the schools in Darty County, in Lee County, in Worth County. This is here, in the post-Christian, what used to be known as the Bible Belt. We are living in this reality. Another study revealed that only 5%, 5%, between the ages of 15 and 29, attend church with any regularity. That means that 95% of the kids that we are trying to reach in this church and train and disciple, 95% of the people around them don't even think about church. They never come. They're not interested. And guess what? That's 95 versus one or two as a parent. You're in an uphill battle. Time to pay attention. There's a significant problem in the under 30 generation with binge drinking, depression, STDs, self-harm, drugs, and suicide. Look at this quote. They perceive no need of or advantage to Christianity. It is indeed a consumer approach. If the only thing it adds is a belief followed by a trip to heaven, all which they see no need, then why bother with Christianity? That seems to me to be a particularly difficult area to approach as it must emanate from their basic philosophy of life. Added to that is a rather negative view of what being a Christian means, i.e., they think it means no sex or drinking now so that you can go to heaven later, which they don't want anyway. They don't want to go to heaven anyway. Barna terms them as mosaics. They are the most spiritually eclectic generation the nation has ever seen. They're all over the map, all over the map. They can be conservative to say, yeah, if, if they're in the church, if they're in the church, they can be conservative to say, yeah, I believe the Bible is the word of God and at the same time be pro-abortion. They are so conflicted in values and in principles that they can say they believe one thing and act and vote a different way. And this is the most broad-based group that we've ever seen in our country. And it's going to get worse because of relative thinking. The younger a person is, the least likely they are to claim to have an active and influential bond with Jesus. 35% of mosaics take an anti-Christian stance. Now, let me just read you some statistics that we got uh, from SLU and from Lifeway back in February. Uh, Generation Z, as they have been named, consists of those born in 1995 or later. This generation contributes $44 billion to the American economy and makes up 
0.9% of the United States population, the largest percentage by 2020, that's next year, they will account for one-third of the United States population. As far as digital natives, while most millennials were early adapters to digital technologies, Generation Z is the first true digital native generation. They're entrepreneurial. During the time of their first birth year, eBay was launched. Since then, Uber, Netflix, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, Apple App Store, and YouTube. All the things that we use now all happened in this generation. Diversity is their norm. This is the last generation in which Caucasians are the majority. This generation holds positive views on the country becoming more diverse. They are physically conservative. They will not be a generation that will go to college and come home and live with their parents. They have seen what college debt will do. They will more likely go to a trade school and get a job to make money so they can buy a car than they will be to go to college. Fewer are going to four-year colleges than ever before, and more and more are staying in local colleges because of the expense. The nuclear family will make up less than a third of all families by 2026, and gender and romantic identities have become blurry as well. They are lonely. Three million adolescents ages 12 to 17 have had a major depression episode. Customization is the standard. Everything in their lives is personalized to them or for them. From playlists to products, news feeds to social media, avatars to education, everything is about preference. And here we are with Jesus, who says, if you want to know what love is, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So what do all those stats have to do with us? Because one of the burdens of my heart and it is a burden, and it breaks my heart, is the number of parents that choose to ignore the many opportunities that this church provides to help your kids in a world that's trying to take them to hell on roller skates. We've got the best staff. We've got the best facilities. We've got the best volunteers. And we could have Jesus come back and reenact the Lord's Supper with 12 of our deacons, and some parents wouldn't bring their kids back on Sunday night for Kids Rock. Listen, if I could, I'd go to Kids Rock. It's fun. It's exciting. We have older young people leading it, and we have people that stay away. Why? To watch TV? To work on the computer? To trim the hedges? Hey, I know you're busy. I'm busy. I know you're tired. I'm tired. I said to somebody this week, I just keep hearing people saying I'm tired. And I said, you know what? I'm tired. I've been through six months of chemo and I've preached every Sunday. What's your excuse? Well, you got to ask yourself, the church cannot resurrect what the home puts to death. 
And one hour in church on Sunday is not enough for your kids that are bombarded by a secular worldview seven days a week. You need all the help you can get, and we're trying to give it. Christian teachers in, in public schools often can't say what they want to say because they see things that some of us, especially grandparents, we think the issues in the school are spitwads and chewing gum under the desk. Any teachers in public schools say we got bigger issues than that? And we're trying to help. But we can't help if you don't let us. We can't help if you don't let us. Watch, watch this. If we really believe God loves us and loves our kids more than we do, why do we make the choice of lesser things when it comes to spiritual training? Why do we make the choice of lesser things when it comes to spiritual training? We've got one shot to mold the character of our kids. And when they leave your home, your shot is basically over. It's basically over. I mean, I got two kids in their 30s, and I can talk to them. They've heard all my sermons. They can quote my sermons back to me. My shot to do the best that I could do to teach them the values that are taught in the Word of God and to give them a Christian worldview was when they were under my roof, eating my food, sleeping in a bed that I provided, and riding in cars or driving cars that I paid for. That's my best shot. You see, I was in youth ministry for 15 years, and I had countless, I think Tim's in the next service, but Garrett, I had countless parents come to me. I can't even begin to name the number of parents that came to me when their kids were 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 years old and saying, oh, my kid's doing drugs, my kid's drinking, my kid's doing this, my kid's doing that, I, my daughter's pregnant, I got all this stuff going on. And my first question was, where have you been for the last 12 years? Because you didn't bring your kid to Bible school, you didn't bring your kid to Sunday school, you didn't I mean, your kid has been absent. I can pull the record up right here. Your kid hadn't been in Sunday school in nine months. You expect me to fix something that you haven't done anything about? And then they blame the church. Well, if the church had been there for me, hey, the church is here seven days a week. We're open every Sunday. Folks, listen. You cannot fight evil with passivity. You have to fight evil aggressively. If you don't fight evil aggressively, you will get run over. We are not to be in a defensive mode. We are to be on the offense. We're to be storming the gates of hell, not hiding under the covers, hoping that the world will leave us alone. It's not going to leave your kids alone. It's going to go after them with a vengeance. And to teach them to love God is the most important thing that you and I can do. The love of God brings security. You want your kids to be secure? The love of God brings security, verse 16. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love 
abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. We have come to know. Again, present tense. We not, not that we used to know, but we've come to know and we still know. We came to believe and we still believe. Every day of your life, you're looking at life through one or two lenses. First of all, anxiety. That's verse 18, which we're going to get to in a minute. You're looking through the lens of anxiety. Four times, fear is presented as a matter to deal with. And fear is an emotion that drives us and changes our perspective and we throw our hands up and we just quit and we say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to live. I don't know what to say. The world is, I mean, we're chicken little. That's fear. And fear is a tool of the enemy. God has not given us a spirit of what? Fear. But a power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, my parents went to church. Every, I mean, we went to church, but we didn't pray at home. I, I didn't see my parents living out their faith. I saw them going to church. We, it was a silo. We went to church on Sundays. There was nothing else during the week. No support except, yeah, we ought to go get up and go to church. So I grew up, got to the... Eighth grade, finished the eighth grade, got to the ninth grade. We had 1,300 people in our high school. And so the middle school, the junior high, sixth, seventh, and eighth, the, the junior high was too crowded. It was overrun. And so they randomly picked 125 freshmen to go to the high school. Now, freshmen didn't go to the high school until 10th grade. But they picked 125 of us out of about a class of 350. Not one of my friends that I played ball with, not one of my friends that I rode bikes with, not one of my friends that we hung out after school, was over, not one of them went to the high school. I was the only one in my group. And I want to tell you, when I walked in that hallway, I didn't know any, really know any of the 124 other kids that went there, and I was scared to death. I saw seniors that looked like John Bunyan. I mean, they just, you know, we, we had a guy on the offensive line, and back in these days, that was, he was big. He was 290 pounds on the offensive line in 1968. as a big old boy in 1968. I ran into him in the hallway. I thought he's going to kill me. <laughs> but here's what happened. I never reconnected even the next year with all those friends that I'd had that I'd gone to elementary school and junior high with. I never reconnected with them because they built their own new relationships and I felt alone, and I lived in fear. And not one time, not one time, did my parents ever sit me down and talk to me from a biblical worldview about how I needed to think about that. My dad just basically said, toughen up. That's easy for you to say when you're a scared kid and you don't have a brother or sister 
in your house and you're an only child and you just toughen up. Ride your bike to school, lock it in the little bike rack, and go in and fear for your life. Some people deal with life, all of life, with anxiety. This world is full of people that live with anxiety, and we need to show them the love of God. The way we are supposed to live is with assurance, verse 17 and 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Perfect love casts out fear. Fully mature, developed love cast out, chases away, radically removes fear so that we have confidence, boldness in the day of judgment. You see, once we know God is love, fear is swallowed up with the assurance that God sees and God knows and God cares. The one who fears is not perfected in love. In other words, the one who fears has not allowed love, the love of God, to overwhelm their hearts, to overwhelm their hearts and to give them peace. Verse 19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. Can I tell you what God's kind of love is? It's like a cough. You can't hide it. Ever tried to hide a cough? And then all of a sudden, you, you can't hide a cough. I mean, just, just try it. Just get sick and try to hide a cough. You can't hide a cough. We're not supposed to be able to in any way hide the love of God that is inside of us. We're not secret agents. We are on display to show people what the love of God does in our lives. Thirdly, the love of God impacts how we see others. 1 John 4.20 If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? Liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should also to love his brother also. We're talking about the Father's nature of love. Unfortunately, there are people, they are not Christians. They call themselves Christians. They are not Christians. Read the Bible. There's no way they're Christians. There are people that think they can love God and worship God and sing their hymns and sing their songs and carry their Bibles and hate somebody that doesn't look like them. The Bible would say you are a liar and the love of God is not in you. Now sometimes we in the South get accused of that. But, but I had a meal with somebody this week, and he said, you know, he said, I, I grew up in Idaho. And he said, I didn't have a prejudice bone in my body. 
He said, I'd never seen anybody who didn't look like me. He said, I moved to California, and all of a sudden I realized I was prejudiced. You see, we love God that is in our image. And there's this underground pseudo-Christian culture club called a clique where everybody looks the same and people make rude and unkind and ungodly statements to other people and think they love Jesus. Can I tell you something? Check your heart. Read 1 John chapter 4 and tell me you love Jesus when you hold hatred against somebody. I don't care what the color of their skin. Could be somebody who looks just like you. But you hold hatred in your heart. I think it's the reason that thousands of churches are dying because they will not embrace their community. When we had a chance to relocate, we didn't. We stayed right here in this neighborhood, and this neighborhood has changed significantly in the last 30 years. And we're right here because we're going to be in the world, but not of the world. But we're going to say whosoever will may come. And we're not going to run from our problems. We're going to embrace them. We're going to invite people to come and be a part of this church. Let me define a clique for you. A clique is a small, exclusive group or circle of people who have a common interest, and they have developed a prideful unwillingness to include others. Now, that's not just the eighth grade girls' table at school. That's churches sometimes. A prideful unwillingness to include others. I've, I've... I've preached in churches in probably 30 states, and I can tell you, every one of them at some point tells me, oh, we are so friendly, we love people, we're so friendly. Mm-hmm. I watch them. They don't ever talk to new people that come in. You know, somebody comes in the door they've never seen, they stare at them. You know, because see, we, we know which doors squeak, visitors don't. And so the door squeaks and somebody says, that's a visitor, don't look around. It's a clique. And can I tell you something? Having a cliquish mentality or a self-righteous mentality or I'm better than anybody else mentality is what's keeping us from having true revival because it's a sin. The Bible is clear. The body of Christ in one is one. Paul says it. In Christ, there's no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female. All are one in Christ. We're all one. Doesn't mean you have to like everything. It means that you're supposed to love unconditionally. And if you can't love somebody, you ought to pray for them. Verse 20. If I say I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Hates is present tense. Present tense, it means expresses a habit or a duration of hatred. There's no gray area in this. You don't need a concordance to figure this out. 
If we say we love God and hate our brother, we're a liar. Verse 21, it's not up for a vote. If someone says, if someone is talking about this, if someone is professing to love God, they don't possess that love for God if they hate their brother. Jim Carpenter said this, the more we reckon with how much he accepts us just as we are, the more we will be secure, emotionally healthy people who can love others as we have been loved. So let me give you four steps to living out the love of God. Number one, treat people the way God treats you. Treat people the way God treats you. That's just a couple of quick examples. Would Jesus hope, hold the door open for a woman? That's a question I'm asking for an answer. Yeah. Then why don't we? Would Jesus hold the door open for somebody that looked different from him? I, I go in businesses and I watch people and they'll walk in and somebody that looks different than them will be behind them and, and they are three feet behind them and they'll just let the door start closing. Hey, you want to win the world? You got to love the world. Don't hand them a track when you can't even hold a door open. Treat people the way God treated you. How's God treated you? He's loved you. Hey, you don't deserve it. Well, they don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. There's nothing about me that deserves the unconditional love of God. If I think so, I am the chief scribe and Pharisee of this church. Pharisees thought they were better than everybody else. That God loved them more than he loved other people. But the people received Jesus gladly because he got in the world with them. Treat people the way God treated you. Number two, act in loving ways regardless of how you feel. Act in loving ways regardless of how you feel. Now, by that, would you just add this line? Emotions follow behavior, not the other way around. Emotions follow behavior. Behave right and your heart will be right. Choose to do what you know you're supposed to do. Choose to do what you know you're supposed to do. Love isn't something you fall into. I'm just hoping one day I, I'm hoping one day I can love people that I don't like. Choose to do it. Choose to do it. Number three, refuse to keep score. Refuse to keep score. Quit collecting emotional trading stamps. Quit collecting emotional trading stamps. The only place you can redeem emotional trading stamps is in hell. Stop collecting, well, this person did this to me, and this person did that to me, and this person, stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. It will eat you up. It will destroy you. Stick to love. 
Number four, depend on the Holy Spirit to change your heart. Depend on the Holy Spirit to change your heart. He's the only one that can do it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then we start doing these things. Well, who's my neighbor? Whoever you happen to be around at the time, that's your neighbor. Terry and I had a private screening of a movie this week uh, at home. Brian Ivey, who became a friend during the shooting of Woodlawn, has done a movie that Viola Davis and Seth Curry have funded. Melissa Hardigate, what's her name? It's on, she's the co-producer. of. Anyway, there are a couple of serious Hollywood people and some seriously famous athletes that are behind the funding of this movie. And so about a week ago, Brian sent it to me and said, would you look at this movie and give me your input? And we wept for two hours. I don't know if I've ever, ever had anything that broke my heart like this movie. It's a documentary. It's the story of the shooting of the Charleston Nine by Dylan Root. Dylan Root walked into one of the oldest churches in America on a Wednesday night for a Bible study, sat in the Bible study in this African-American church, and then when they bowed to pray, he took his 45 out with a laser pointer and he shot people in the back who were praying multiple times with hollow point bullets. If you remember, Ferguson was going on then, Baltimore was going on then. Dylan Root was caught in North Carolina, brought for his bail hearing. And at his bail hearing, the family members of the nine that were killed said to Dylan Root, we forgive you. And we've asked God to forgive you. Almost all of them shared the gospel with him. They had barely even buried their loved ones that had been murdered by a racist. And they offered forgiveness. And he stood there with dark eyes and a cold stare. And it diluted all the issues that were stirring in the streets. In fact, in the documentary, there are two activists who said we were ready to fight and to go to the streets. And when they offered forgiveness, the whole temperature went down. One grandmother who was embracing her grandchild under a table. She had crawled under the table and her, grandson, her son was laying up against her 
and he had already been shot once, and she said, I could feel the warmth of the blood coming against my body. And Dylan Root reloaded, and her son got up and said, you don't have to do this. He said, yes, I do. He said, you don't have to do this. Why are you doing this? And he shot that young man multiple times, and he died right next to his grandmother. At one point in the movie, you see her Bible, and it's opened up to the Gospel of Mark, and every page on her Bible is pink. And she said, when I got there for that bail hearing, I looked at my Bible, and that pink was the stains of the blood of my son on my Bible. And all of a sudden, God just said to me, my son's blood saved your life and offered you forgiveness. And if I can offer you forgiveness, you can forgive him. And it changed the city of Charleston. Thousands of people gathered in Charleston in prayer vigils. You see people of every tribe and tongue in Charleston, which is a birthplace of the Confederacy, holding hands and praying and crying out to God. Folks, listen. It shouldn't take tragedy for us to love one another. It shouldn't. It just shouldn't. Because the tragedy happened on the cross 2,000 years ago when a sinless son died for your sins and for mine so that we could have life and we could know unconditional love and we could have a peace that passes all understanding and we could see people through the eyes of Jesus not through the eyes of how we were raised or what other people think. The world is not going to change if the church doesn't show the world what love looks like. We have to love even when it's hard. We have to love even when it hurts. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Close your eyes.